there had been abuse in my family, uh, but it was mostly musical in nature. Are you ready to get your world rocked? Ready! Are you ready to get your mind blown? Do it! One, two, three, four! The Grateful Dead has inspired a true community of devoted diehards, but many others can never find their way on the bus. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. We'll re-examine the legacy of the Grateful Dead as the band celebrates its 50th anniversary. Then we'll review the debut album from rapper Vince Staples. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. Trucking, got my chips cashed in. Keep trucking, like the doodah man. Together, more or less in line. Just keep trucking on. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and Greg, I feel as if a cloud of incense, patchouli, and some other substance I, I can't quite place has descended upon us because after 500-something shows, we are going to devote one to the Grateful Dead. The San Francisco band made up in the early days of uh, guitarist vocalist Jerry Garcia and Bob Weir, Ron Pigpen McKernan on keyboards, Phil Lesh on bass, Bill Kreutzman on drums, eventually joined by Mickey Hart. We were both at their final shows with Jerry Garcia in 1995 at Soldier Field. Right. You were at this reunion show at Soldier Field just a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, this is their 50th anniversary show, billing themselves as the Grateful Dead for the first time since Garcia's death in 95, which was a radical move in itself, and really not the Grateful Dead. For a long time, they'd sort of honored the legacy and called themselves the other ones, and then the dead when they would reunite. We're or talking further. About the, the four core members, four core surviving members of the group. This time they brought in Trey Anastasio of Fish to play some guitar. They brought in Bruce Hornsby on keyboards. And, you know, great musicians all, but it took 2,000 shows for the dead to develop <laughs> yeah. this chemistry. There was a musical thing going on with that band that was unique in, in rock history. And you're not going to get that with a couple of rehearsals before the final shows. From a musical standpoint, the show certainly wasn't up to the standards that the Dead set at their very best, and some of the fans pilloried me for that. But, you know, I want to look, go back, and you do as well, and talk about this band. You know, what was the reality of those first 30 years, which is what we're going to focus on in this particular show. You know, and, and we, sh we should talk about those early days before they were the Grateful Dead gym. Their beginning is in Northern California in 1965. In 65, they were a sort of high hybrid of a band that was part jug band and basic mid-60s garage rock band, mm -hmm. right? They, they formed as the Warlocks. Kreutzmann, I think, is really important because he was a, a pretty fundamentally straightforward rock drummer. And there was this kind of, you know, just almost Steppenwolf kind of quality to the Warlocks.
and they're not indistinguishable from a lot of the stuff on Lenny Kay's Nuggets compilation, except for the fact that Garcia also had this bluegrass side to him, well, this jug band originally side. Originally a banjo player. Yes. Garcia started out on banjo before he moved over to guitar and electric guitar. Now, the psychedelic moment hits San Francisco famously in 66, really flourishes in 67, the summer of love. And the Grateful Dead is tapped by Ken Kesey, leader of the Merry Pranksters, who had taken acid as an experimental subject of the, the CIA and the, the Army giving acid to people to seeing if, the, seeing if this could be a useful thing on the battlefield. <laughs> Kesey puts together this band of misfits and travels the country in a bus, in a school bus. They paint Dayglo and coal further. On the East Coast, you had Harvard professor Timothy Leary initially saying that LSD should be taken with great care. Kesey was more of a prankster, a punk. He wanted to, you know, dose everybody and just everybody. Now, this didn't always work very well. If you read the incredible Tom Wolfe book, The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, in which the Grateful Dead play a large role, they're incorporated first as the Warlocks, then as the Grateful Dead, by Kesey on in what he called his acid tests. You rent a big warehouse, so you go out in the woods and lights and chaotic music and noise and people are naked and people are dancing and the Grateful Dead would play for hours and hours at a time and you would have uh, allegedly this enlightening experience at any rate uh we were part of the same world socially you know i mean uh, that is to say we lived in the same county you know and Mm -hmm. and and we knew some of the same people page and some of the people in kzc were were friends of ours and um we we were playing in bars and things like that but we'd heard about takizi and the bus and their whole the They've been doing outrageous things for quite a while and had a big a reputation for it. And, and for us, it was uh, it seemed like a real interesting thing to go and check out. We sort of were invited, in, in effect, by friends of ours who were staying out of Kesey's place. We kicked them out of the place two or three times before we invited them. Yeah, right. We, we weren't exactly welcome guests. <laughs> The Grateful Dead signed to Warner Brothers Records. You know, Warner Brothers at that point, you know, it's got it's got Frank Sinatra on it, right? This is a pretty square record label that signs the Grateful Dead. The first album is made, I think, in a pretty punk rock fashion. You know, this is where you you still hear the Warlocks at their best. Well, this job Made quick and dirty, Grateful Dead, self-titled, released in 1967, and then they start to become the Grateful Dead that people would know and love. Now, people talk endlessly about the Dead live. I think they were a pretty good band on record for much of their career when they had to focus, when they were presumably sober (laughs) and Mm. not uh, tripping, when they were fairly concise. You know, they would become famous as a jam band, but early on that first album is a pretty focused collection of songs. And then the next two really incorporate very well the chaos of the live psychedelic sets of the late 60s and early 70s into the recording studio. Most infamously, I think, Anthem of the Sun in 1968, the second Dead album, is just a masterpiece of psychedelic lunacy. I'm not saying it's a masterpiece as a musical record start to finish, but boy, I really appreciate what they were trying to do. They spent 
hours and hours and hours, weeks, months in the recording studio. It wasn't really flying. It was one of the most expensive recording sessions that Warner Brothers ever had up to that point. Garcia said what he was trying to do was mix music for hallucinations, (laughs) okay? Bob Weir said they were trying to capture the illusion of thick air in the recording studio. I don't know what that means, but I think it's the cloud I mentioned earlier. It was a failure until they began taking some of the tapes of their live sets and incorporating them in a sort of sonic collage into the recording. Notably, Kreutzmann, the straightforward rock drummer, is joined by this point by Mickey Hart on the second album, who is a great percussionist, as well as a a solid rock and roll drummer. He is bringing in all these polyrhythms played on ethnic instruments. Times there are three or four or five recordings of live sets plus studio material all being superimposed one on top of the other on this record. What does any of it mean? I have no idea. There's an instrumental section called Quadlibet for Tenderfeet. I mean, well, what is this about? This is just stoner lunacy, but it's very good stoner lunacy, I think. I don't know how you feel about Anthem of the Sun, but I think it's one of the great psychedelic rock albums of all time. You know, when you're 17 and you come across the country and you think you're going to live on the streets in San Francisco... You know, that's a good idea in the summer, but then what happens, right, when you right. don't have any money and you have nowhere to eat? So so there begins to be this community of hippies taking care of one another, and I think the dead becomes the focal point of that, but there's a naivete. I, I mention this because, especially during the last 10 years of the band's career, it's important to remember there's always a dark side to this psychedelic utopianism. Two important things happened in the period of 69-70. One, they started to realize that the studio in some ways was a limitation in terms of trying to do all this experimenting in the studio and getting it to translate in a way that their stage show was doing at the time. So in 69, the Live Dead record that came out that year, to them crystallized what they were going for. Like, we're better in this setting. Let's just record one of our shows and, and record it as accurately as possible. Yeah, and this is out what of, we do. Out of that particular recording, a sidelong song called Dark Star mm-hmm. defined the poles of the best and absolute worst of the Grateful Dead, depending on which side of the fence you stay on. Dark Star crashes Pouring its light into ashes You either get the dead or you don't based on your reaction to Dark Star. It was a song that changed every night. It was a song that could be could vary in length from a few minutes to 25, 30, 40 minutes sometimes, yeah. and they would play it a different way every time. we we uh, got to talk about the ingredients yeah. there, Greg, because there's some Coltrane free jazz. Yes, there is the a blue, lot of jazz. A lot of jazz. There's the bluegrass that, that Garcia so deeply loves. There's a little rock and roll, because you can't help but, you know, that's what Kreutzmann right. plays in 4-4, right? There's Lesh was very much schooled as an electronic musician, taking cues from Lamont Young and Karlheinz Stockhausen 
some of those mm-hmm. pioneering avant-garde experimentalists. Well, the other element that you started to see creeping into this music, and, and part of the allure of Dark Star were those lyrics by Robert Hunter, mm. who was Jerry Garcia's great collaborator throughout the years. I think the key to the Grateful Dead for so many years and the core of their legacy is the collaboration between Jerry Garcia and Robert Hunter on those songs, which enabled them to open yeah. up in concert. Well, Dark it's Star was one of their first masterpieces. When the Dead were uh, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, it was the musicians plus Hunter. Yes, Hunter he was, was that important. You know, for all intents and purposes, a member of the band. He just happened to be the lyricist who didn't perform with them on stage. The first uh, lyric, the first thing that we did together, I think, was Dark Star. At that time, he was writing like crazed, crystal freak, mad imagery, you know. You know, he was into it, uh, in other words, you know, into language and into writing and stuff like that. So his, his early, his writings at that time were these amazing, complex glyphs, almost. So you have this collaboration that is starting to coalesce between Garcia and Hunter. You heard it on Oxamoxa, their 1969 studio album, St. Stephen and China Cat Sunflower. Great songs that are still part of their set lists for, for decades afterward. Well, and China Cat Sunflower always running into I Know You Rider, right? This classic blues folk song, the dead at their best. Yeah. Here they are experimenting with a style, but they're merging it into 40 or 50 years of the great American musical yes. canon. I know you ride. So there was this, these twin poles. You, you saw the experimental side on 1969 Live Dead, and then in 1970 you see these two albums that honor their sort of Americana roots, their, their roots in the American vernacular predating rock and roll, the bluegrass, the country, the, uh, the blues, early forms of music that uh, threaded through uh, into rock and roll decades later. So you're talking about Working Man's Dead and American Beauty. American Beauty, twin peaks of their career as songwriters. I think the flourishing of the Garcia-Hunter uh, collaboration can be heard on something like Working Man's Dead, where you get the whole gamut of what they were going for. Uncle John's Band, Casey Jones, Black Peter, which was an acoustic song. And I think an example of Garcia, at his best, self-taught on pedal steel guitar, he plays it on this tr- on this Hunter Garcia track, Dire Wolf, which is a great example of, you know, here we are going back to the music that influenced us and influenced rock and roll and, and showing their audience where all this came from. And the timber's up in Mario, the walls are running round. Winter was so hot and cold, froze ten feet beneath the ground. Don't murder me, I beg of you, don't murder me. Please don't murder me. Very much influenced by the band Music from Big Pink. You know, everybody yeah. was sort of retreating to the countryside. The dead themselves were doing that at this time getting away from that psychedelic excess and going towards something a lot simpler, a lot more straightforward. Think this through with me. I love that lyric in Uncle John's band because I think that was the trip they were on with their audience. It was like, we're in this together. You know, it's not just us talking to you. It's us thinking this situation through, going to the next place 
the next destination that we're headed for. Well, the first days are the hardest days, don't you worry anymore. Cause when life looks like easy street, there is danger at your door. Think this through with me. Let me know your mind. American Beauty. That is a great album, man. Oh, yeah, that's what I've heard. Are you a deadhead? Um, no. I. Someone just gave it to me to listen to. Oh, well, if you never heard it before, you're in for a treat because it's like the best album of all time. Is it that great? I wish I never heard it just so I could hear it again for the first time. The beauty about American Beauty. The, the follow-up album to Working Man's Dead was the, you know, you started to see Phil Lesh, Bob Weir stepping up as songwriters. They were joining Garcia and Hunter setting the bar pretty high. Then you get a great song like Box of Rain mm. from Phil Lesh. Again, Hunter helping with the lyrics on that song, but Lesh singing a song about his dying father, one of the most beautiful songs in the Dead catalog. Look out of any window And then you have Weir, again working with Hunter, coming up with a track like Sugar Magnolia, which is one of the timeless Grateful Dead tracks. So suddenly you had three songwriters in this band being helped, collaborating with Robert Hunter, creating very song-oriented records. I think one of the misconceptions about the Dead is, you know, they didn't have any songs, man. It was just a jam band. We'll talk more about the Grateful Dead and how they evolved into a band whose live performances mattered much more than their studio albums. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis, along with a tie-dye clad Greg Cott. And this week, we're looking back at the 50-year career of the Grateful Dead. We talked earlier about the band's studio albums from the 60s and early 70s, many of which I actually like a lot. But their fans will tell you that the true Grateful Dead experience is live, where they could really stretch out and experiment. And that's a frustrating notion for me, especially since the band's live performances were so erratic and inconsistent. If we had, you know, a diehard, self-professed deadhead in the studio with us right now, they always say one in three. One in three, man. Well, one not in three. all of them. Many. I- I've never met a dad who doesn't. What do they mean by that? They mean by one in three of the live shows is magical, right? Now, see, I always argue that's bad consumer value. That means the other two sucked, right? So why this obsession, Greg, with the live experimentation, which can be brilliant one in three times and can be dreadful two in three times well, when you have these great records? I think the batting average is a lot higher in those early years, and this is my argument about the dead. Okay, the one in three argument. Okay, I can see that flying for the last 15 years of the band. In the 80s and 90s, and we're going to get to this in a minute, the batting average was a lot lower, but I would say between the period of about 1969 through 74, the Grateful Dead was a very consistently good great live band. And I think you can hear the evidence in a series of live recordings called Dick's Picks, which was curated by the Grateful Dead's archivist, Dick Ledvala. 36 volumes of prime Grateful Dead shows. He was an expert, you know, in chronicling every one of those shows, because everyone was taped. The fans taped them, but the band taped them as well, and saying, this was the night on that tour. We need to put that out on our own. And the Dead would do this through their own mail order system and later on their website making these these great Dick's Picks live albums available and the Dick's Picks records from this era are extraordinary and that's when I realized wait a minute there's more to this band than I realized come on babe baby please begging you baby and I'm on my knees turn on your life let it shine on me Turn on your love light Let it shine on me Hey, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine This is before the drugs kicked in This is before the band started to become five or six different orbits hovering around Garcia, you know? It, it, it was a true band back then, and, and they were touring regularly and giving some extraordinary performances. Well, touring nonstop, I have to say I have not had the patience to wade through as many Dick's Picks uh, or all of Dick's Picks as you have, okay? I respect the studio records, like I said, even more as a sociology journalism double major back in college. I respect the community the dead built mm-hmm. up because I don't think you can separate the two. This group of diehard fans that would travel with the man across the country, this notion of this is not a commercial enterprise. Right. We are people coming together because of art, and we love being together, and we share you don't have a ticket? I have two tickets. I'll give you one. I don't have a meal. You made some vegan uh, uh, rice and vegetables. I'll take that. Thank you very much. We follow the band with a bunch of people because it's all one thing. And yeah, like, it's inspiring for it to be one thing. You know, like, that's why I love them so much. And it's different from, like, hanging out in, like, Babylon where you don't really care that much about your neighbor. 
Like here, everybody cares about each other, and the music cares about you, you know? And we all sing praises to each other. The Dead always had a tremendous party in the 70s into the 80s in the parking lot that sometimes, you know, for my money, was better than actually what was happening on stage, right? Darn good party. It's a shame they sometimes played a bad night and ruined it. But I I think being outside of the industry and paving the way for the band to be a self-contained unit that does not need hype or merchandising or the big record company machine behind them. I mean, they're signed to Warner Brothers through their whole career, right? Right. But, you know, that's almost irrelevant. It's almost irrelevant to what they are in concert. I think a pivotal year for the Grateful Dead was 1972 when we saw the first of the casualties in the band. McKernan, the great keyboardist, basically drank his way out of the band at that point. Replaced by Keith Godshaw on keyboards, who did change the sound and sensibility of the band. It became much more jazz-oriented with Godshaw in the group. But Godshaw ultimately succumbed to drugs and substance abuse too, Greg, and his replacement, Brent Midland, died of an overdose a decade later. Yes, it was a difficult time for the band in many ways. I mean, the studio recordings became very much up and down after the twin triumphs of uh, Working Man's Dead and American Beauty. The thing was the live show, Europe 72, that famous triple album that they put out, documenting one of their first European tours, revered by deadheads. But the studio record's very erratic. I'm curious, Jim... Being the prog rock head that you are, <laughs> what you think of Terrapin Station in 1977, which was the, it, it was their take on progressive rock. I can't hear it any way else. They were using these symphonic orchestrations on that record and strings, which was a hugely radical move for the band. And some of the band's own fans didn't like it. Sullen wings of fortune beat like rain. You're back in Terrapin for good You know, I do not like that album. My vision of psychedelic rock is it needs to have both of those words involved. There is this attempt to use the studio, let's say, as as a way to transport the listener to something that only exists in the space between the headphones. But it still rocks. It still drives. If you listen to early Yes, or Genesis, Pink Floyd, certainly, there's a rock drive there. And I think that by Terrapin Station, Kreutzmann, poor Bill, is being eclipsed, all mm-hmm. right? And it's Mickey Hart. And Mickey Hart's playing in these jazz time signatures, 17 eighths and all this stuff. It's losing the essential rock and roll drive, the anchor that holds down that free-flowing thing. It stops being rock and roll. I don't know, man. I, I like to bang my head <laughs> in rhythm. And you can do that with Uncle John's band. You can do that with the songs that had preceded this era, I begin to lose the plot here and, uh, and, and not like things as much. Well, it's a controversial record, but again, I go back to the live recordings from that era. I mean, there's a concert that got officially released in 2009 under the name To Terrapin, Hartford 77, and to me, that's the album they should have put out, because that captures the essence of the dead attacking these songs in a way that I think is more up your alley.
they were having so much difficulty figuring out what they wanted to be in the studio. They were bringing in these outside producers at that point. I mean, Shakedown Street in 1978, the Grateful Dead go to heaven for God's sakes oh. with that Bee Gees type of cover. the rapid decline of the dead as a valid studio band and it was all about the live show at that point until this miracle occurs in 1987, and it spawns this surprise top 10 hit, Touch of Grey, which I hear as the band sort of laughing at themselves. You know, I mean, they're not quite as pompous as, let's say, Bono or Sting, you know, but there's always a, a self-seriousness. As I said, Garcia treating music as religion, right? Right. You know, Touch of Grey, they're saying, hey, we're, we're old fat hippies. We're jolly, right? They're having fun. The video, I still remember the video. More troublingly, Greg, the most honest historians of the band and the most honest fans of the band talk about what's beginning to happen. They have this hit. It makes them kind of pop. It begins to attract a new wave of fan. And the parking lot scene, which is, again, inseparable from what the dead is, begins to turn ugly. I had Dennis McNally, the uh, the reigning historian of the band, did a long interview with him when his biography came out. And he said, you know, in 87, suddenly we're on the radio and I'm quoting, you've got people going down to find out what all the buzz is about. When they get there, they discover a parking lot full of beer and girls to hit on and lots of drugs for sale, I would add. And the end result is thousands of people who are there for all the wrong reasons who haven't got that sort of training in basic good visitor manners. Mm -hmm. What do I mean? Earlier, I said, you're hungry. I will feed you. You give me your extra ticket, right? There was this sort of communal sense to the band, and now it's becoming a sort of out-of-control frat party. That's when I first saw The Dead Live, four or five shows between the mid-'80s into the early-'90s, and I'm like, this is really sort of distasteful. I don't even feel safe here, really, sometimes, right? You had people who were on a bad trip and looking to do harm, and that would continue until Jerry's death. You know, a lot of sad incidents at concerts with people overdosing, right. people dying, murders even, and the dead felt very much out of control. This is my last tour because I can't stand what it's like out here these people say oh we're peaceful we're respectful we love but you know they don't do any of those things they're disrespectful they don't understand common courtesy they don't have respect for other people you know i sleep with a weapon here i you know i'm scared well, Jerry uh, Garcia was was dying. He was going through all sorts of medical issues, well documented during the last decade of the group. And when it became a stadium band thing, they got all this new audience that was there for the party yeah. and sort of vaguely understood what the music was about. But it was all about the party. And I think the dead looked at that. And we don't see ourselves in this audience anymore, if they were being honest with themselves. I spent about a week with them on the road in, uh, in the early 90s doing a story for the Chicago Tribune. 
And I, I had a long interview with Garcia in which he was very frank about the idea that this has become almost too big. But at the same time, I feel like I've got to keep this ship moving because we've got too many people involved. You know, I care about these people that have worked for us for so long. I feel an obligation to them. If I just call it quits now, which I think everybody, including some of his own band members, were telling him to do because of his health, he said, I will let them down. Where is their next paycheck going to come from? Not only the roadies, the sound technicians, all the people in the organization, but, you know, there are many people who traveled with the band who sold tie-dye T-shirts or jewelry. There were literally probably 10,000 people whose livelihoods revolved around the dead, and he felt a responsibility. Now, Lesh and everybody else in the band always said, you know, the Grateful Dead would not have existed without psychedelic drugs. That's why I keep going back to that. But the drugs changed. Garcia became a heroin addict. Mm -hmm. Instead of psychedelics, which is about transcending and discovering yourself and something greater in the universe, heroin's about obliteration. Tune everything out. You know, I want to escape. I think there was a lot of escapism in the dead toward the end, and that was sad. Yeah, the band played its final shows in Soldier Field in July of 1995. Jim, you and I were both there. We were. What did you think of those shows? I think it was a very depressing show. Yeah. You know, it was the first show I reviewed for the Chicago Sun-Times. Uh, I got thrown in the middle of this. I have to write 650 words on deadline at 20 right. minutes after fighting my way out of Soldier Field. And I got more hate mail right off the bat. I said, I don't know if I want this job. right? Mm. But it was a sad show. Now people are honest about it. You know, I think the drums and space, the infamous... Kreutzmann Hart drum solo was about 35 or 40 minutes that night. <laughs> it seemed that way, right? Yeah, but, but well, no, but sometimes it literally was. I mean, yeah. that was the break where everybody else went off stage either to catch a nap, catch their breath, or take drugs. Garcia was not healthy. The show was not good. The music was dreadful. I counted it up. I I saw 13 Grateful Dead shows in my life coming in in the mid-'80s up until that last show. I never caught one of the three. Maybe I just had bad luck, but I never had that transcendent moment with the dead live. You know, I think the dead dissipated a lot of greatness by the fact that they were so erratic and so bad on so many occasions in those last few years. Well, like the two of us, they needed an editor. You know, the drugs just killed that band. Yeah. They killed Garcia, and they killed the effect of, the, of that band. I do remember seeing some pretty good shows with that group when Hornsby joined the band initially in the early 90s. He eventually quit because he didn't think the music was up to par. Mm. He was very clear about that. I do remember writing in my review in the Chicago Tribune from the 95 show in Soldier Field that Jerry Garcia did not look like a man who was very well. We were worried about him. And a month later, he's dead. Yeah. Very well, After a short break, we'll wrap up our discussion of The Grateful Dead, then we'll review the new album by Long Beach rapper Vince Staples. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. On my hands and my knees. 
Jerry Garcia, the Grateful Dead guitarist who kept the counterculture of the 1960s rocking and rolling right into the 90s, died today in California. He was 53. Garcia was found dead at a drug rehabilitation center reportedly of natural causes. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. My partner is Jim DeRigatis. And this week we're marking both the 50th anniversary of the Grateful Dead and the 20th anniversary of the death of its leader, Jerry Garcia, who passed away August 9th, 1995. Garcia was a truly unique musician. The way he played guitar, each note had a sort of value to it that was clearly there. You know, it reminded me a lot of the way B.B. King would play the guitar. Each note counted. There was a beauty to those notes, a tone that was very much Garcia's own. The other thing was his sensitivity as a vocalist. When he would sing a song like Scarlet Begonia's, there was a sensitivity and a compassion and a poignancy to Garcia's vocal delivery that I think was never recaptured by the band. I think that was one of the reasons that they broke up, because they realized how much Garcia brought to the table. They were all really fine musicians, but I think Garcia was the true genius when he was healthy. A great example is a recording from Madison Square Garden in 1987. The band is playing that old protest song, Morning Dew, with its post-nuclear holocaust setting, and you can really hear what Garcia brought to the table as a guitar player and as a singer. And that's, I think, what I'm going to remember about this group, those 30 years when Garcia was at his best musically. And I think it's sad that a lot of people came to the band, you know, kind of when Jerry was in decline. The legacy of the band is so much beyond, oh, they they started the jam band era, you know, Fish and Dave Matthews Band and Blues Traveler, you know, whoever you want to name, have all come out of that era. But I think what was important to me about the band was this mix-and-match blend of styles, everything from jazz to bluegrass to blues to early rock and roll. They were ahead of their time. When you talk about the whole idea of a mashup 
or a mix-and-match culture that we're in now in the 21st century. I think the dead were there early on. And the dead was also ahead of its time in terms of file sharing. You know, with the Grateful Dead, you basically see the birth of this notion of trading music on the Internet. Yeah, the Dead was among the very first bands to actually encourage its fans to tape its shows. Not only to tape its shows, but to take those tapes and then trade them freely with other fans. Bring in a wider audience for us. I mean, that's the first step towards the Internet culture we live in now. Oh, yeah, yeah. Napster in its earliest days, Greg, was nothing but Grateful Dead recordings. The legacy they left, you know, who needs the record companies? They worked with the major labels. Yes, they did. But they were basically a self-contained business. Well, and, and a community. Again, yes. you know, the audio, there was no fourth wall. Mm-hmm. Not like the Rolling Stones playing a stadium. We're up here. We're golden gods. You're right. down there you know, and have paid hundreds of dollars to be here. The dead were not like I admire that enormously. So with literally thousands of Grateful Dead recordings out there, if you're new to the band, where do you start? I think we got to give uh, listeners some guidance. I mean, I think you only need five Grateful Dead recordings, all right? You need the first album from 1967, Anthem of the Sun, Oxamoxa, Live Dead, and I would throw in the Golden Road box set. I like that set from 65 to 73. covers a lot of the high points you were talking about earlier. I'm flying down deserted streets. Wrapped in mother's wine and cheese asbestos boots on flaming feet. Dreaming of forbidden trees when uniforms on nighttime beats. Ask me where I'm going and what I eat. I answer them with a voice so sweet. I can't come down. It's plain to see. I can't come down. I've been set free. Yeah, I I would agree with a lot of those picks, but okay, I'll give you five picks that I think are a starter kit for somebody who's never heard The Grateful Dead or has heard of them and wants to learn more. I think the core of the band's songwriting legacy is in two records, Working Man's Dead and American Beauty, both released in 1970. Uh, You really get the core of the Robert Hunter, Jerry Garcia songwriting collaboration in Working Man's Dead, and you get the other guys contributing great songs in American Beauty. Sugar Magnolia, fossils blooming, that's all empty and I don't care. So my baby down by the river, knew she'd have to come up soon for air. Then, you know, you mentioned Live 69. I think that's an officially released Live Dead recording that kind of gets away from the studio stuff that was kind of hamstringing them early on and really allowed them to flourish in the live setting. St. Stephen with the rose singing out of the garden he goes. Country garden in the wind and the rain. Wherever he goes, the people all complain. (laughs) 
And I think two of those Dick's Picks records are also great selections. Volume 4, which is of a Fillmore East show in 1970, and then a few months later, Volume 8 from a college concert in Binghamton, New York, uh, Harper College to be precise, are great examples of how the dead could stretch out in a song-oriented fashion in a live setting. wraps up our discussion of the Grateful Dead and its legacy, but we really want to know what you have to say. Are you enchanted by the band's wild experimentation, or does it give you the hives? Give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. Hey, I'm just a new, until I fill my pockets, and then I miss the new. They follow me while shopping, I feel like making riches. They feel like muddy waters, so tell me what's the difference. So tell me what's the difference. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and that is a bit of the track Lift Me Up by rapper Vince Staples. Summertime 06 is the name of this recording. Greg, this is a young rapper, early 20s, initially made his mark on the scene with his pal Earl Sweatshirt, part of that Odd Future collaborative. Grew up in Long Beach, California. Besides working with some of the Odd Future people, he also worked with Common, and he got none other than No ID, who was an executive at his label, Def Jam, and probably best known for producing Kanye West, to work on this recording. It's a broad, sprawling canvas, 20 tunes, but it's short and focused and punchy. It doesn't take up a lot of time. He is writing about his hometown, Long Beach, much as we heard Kendrick Lamar earlier this year write about Compton, but his worldview is very, very different. We'll talk about that in a moment. I do want to set the stage before we hear this track and give our opinions with a quote he gave on Instagram introducing the album artwork. He said, Love will tear us apart. November 30th, 2005 was the beginning of the loss. The following summer multiplied it. Beaten paths, crowded with the hopeless. Same song every day, listening to the words of a dead man destroyed by his own mind and body. Wow. Let's hear a track called Summertime by Vince Staples from Summertime 06 on Sound Opinions. This could be forever, baby. This could be forever, baby. This could be forever, baby. This could be forever, maybe. Do you like the sunshine? Do you like the snow? Do you want to talk about it? Be alone, I think that you should know that this could be forever, baby. Open up your eyes and tell me what you're thinking. Open up your mind and tell me what you're seeing inside of me. Why we fussing? Not this evening. I probably couldn't fix it if I knew the reason. Upon the scene, why I see you falling in the deep end. Is it love? I would really love to know the meaning. What's the grudge that you hold and hold my hand? Let me take you to the land where the ocean in the sands of me is. Look at the sun, all we need to see to know our freedom. Open up your heart. If we don't love, then we fall apart. 
knew you I can never do this to you Hope you understand They never taught me how to be a man Only how to be a shooter I only need the time to prove it Cause this could be forever, baby This could be forever, baby This could be forever, baby This could be forever, maybe Do you like the sunshine? Do you like the snow? Do you want to talk about it? Or be alone? I think that you should know That this could be forever, baby That is Summertime from the new Vince Staples album, Summertime 06, 22-year-old rapper out of Long Beach. You know, I think gangster rap gets a bad rap, not to misuse a term there, but it is one of those genres of music that instantly polarizes people. They hear gangster rap and they immediately think violent, misogynistic, all the evils that one can possibly heap on a genre get heaped on gangster rap. Well, and it often is, Greg. Well, there there are... Countless examples of that, but there are also very good examples of gangster rap thoughtfully looking at this world. To me, it was a lens into a culture that no one else was talking about in the late 80s, early 90s. And when you talk about the early days of the form, the early NWA records, the early work from Ice Cube and Ice T, those were extraordinary. And in recent years, we have seen a kind of a feeling brought back in records like Kendrick Lamar's Good Kid, Mad City. And I'm thinking of that when I think of this Vince Staples' Summertime 06 record. The same kind of feel. This kid grew up in a family of gangbangers. It was around him all the time. He couldn't escape it. He understands the culture very well to the point where he himself was involved in it. He doesn't look at it like, I'm going to extol this. Look at me. Look how proud I am. He's very conflicted about it. And in that song, of Summertime, we really hear it. There's a lyric in there where my teachers told us we were slaves. Mm. My mama told us we were kings. My feelings told me love is real, but feelings here can get you killed. That's the million-dollar couplet on this album. It's a brilliant song. I think the whole album builds to that song, and it comes right at the end of the first disc. It's a story. It's a narrative that he's, he's telling here about his life growing up in this very hard environment where there really is no mercy, even for the youngest. So the fact that he's lived to the age of 22, in some ways, I think he realized, hey, it's a miracle that I'm even here to to say this. And he's very thoughtful about it. I think this is one of the landmark releases of the year so far. Vince Staples' Summertime 06 is a buy it record. I think it's a buy it record too, Greg. I mean, I want to make clear that distinction between good gangster rap and bad gangster rap. I think that people who are talking about the world around them. I mean, how can we decry that as bad art when people are just building on what they're living in, right? I'll tell you how. When it becomes a shtick and we glorify gun violence, okay, this guy is still really talking about his upbringing. He's not glorifying the gun violence. There's a lot of the N-word. There's a lot of the B-word. There are a lot of things here that are triggers for people who would say, wait a minute, there's hate on this album. I don't think there's hate. I think there's despair. That quote I read earlier that he put out there, at the end of the day, we're all dead anyway, he says. Mm -hmm. That's nihilism. And it's so sad that that exists out there in America. But how can we decry that as bad art if we loud like the Velvet Underground when Lou Reed's in his heroin addiction 
talking about that. I think it's a sad way to be. I think Kendrick Lamar, or for that matter, Chance the Rapper from Chicago, looking at the violence on the streets around them and saying, but there is also hope and there is also community. I think those are greater works of art, but this is a really impressive work of art. I hope on this next album that he makes, because anybody who debuts with such an ambitious 20-song double album debut, he's got a life as an artist. I hope he begins to also see the good things in this community of Long Beach, that it wasn't just violence and nihilism. So yeah, it's a buy it because he's an important voice. What do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we are going to look at TV and how it uses music. As always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, Evan Chung, Alex Claiborne, and our intern is Emily Espinel. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Hey guys, this is Brad Brooks Rubin calling from Washington, D.C. You mentioned on your review of Wilco's uh, record that Jeff Tweedy is no slouch on a guitar, and it brought to mind a conversation I had with a buddy actually during their set at the Pitchfork Festival, which is in the second act genre of a career. How many musicians are there who've had a great second act on a different instrument than their first act? So obviously Tweedy was the bassist. In Uncle Tupelo, Dave Grohl comes to mind. When I sing along with you, if everything could ever feel this real forever, if anything could ever be this good again, the only thing I'll ever ask of you, you gotta promise not to stop when I say. But it'd be great to uh, hear you guys figure out who have been the great musicians who not only had a great second act, but done it on a different instrument. Thanks. Hi, Jim and Greg. It's Ryan O'Halloran from Glen Ellen calling in response to your review of the new Wilco album, Star Wars. Totally agree with you. It's my favorite album from Wilco in years. A testament to their kind of nod to the, the weirder Wilco fans out there. The fact that they started the album with the weirdest, most noisy instrumental song of the whole album. I love it. Thanks again, guys. Love your show. Hi, uh, I was calling to comment on the Star Wars album. I've been a Wilco fan for about uh, probably five years now. I think that Star Wars is the ultimate love letter to Chicago, um, given that it was released the day before their Pitchfork 
headlining set, and it was just like the ultimate kind of vindication that they're, you know, they're still kind of very much ingrained in the city and very much a part of everything that uh, musically, like, Opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.